0: Hello everyone
1: and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today, delighted to say, my guest is Stephen B. Dobronsky. Stephen is Distinguished University Professor at Georgia State University and we're talking to Stephen about his brilliant new book just published by Stanford University Press, Reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times. Stephen, it's great to meet you, it's great to have you on the show and thanks for your time.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Well,
1: it's a pleasure to read your book. I mean, it's, it's, it's a compelling read. It's it's lively, it's enthusiastic, it's incredibly well-informed in the scholarship, and it really gives us a Milton that we can engage with today. You've been writing about Milton at a very high level for about 25 years or so. How does, does your background in Milton studies prepare you for this book, Reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times?
0: This book grew in part from my scholarship and in part from my experience in the classroom. Often students find their way into my Milton seminar by happenstance, by some sort of degree requirement, and they fall in love. Uh, They discover that this guy is not the dour purist whom they anticipated, although many of them don't even have that false expectation. And so when they come in and they then read Paradise Lost, when they read some of these compelling sonnets, when they see how prescient Milton was in his political views for the time, they absolutely fall in love. So it grew, as I say, through both. I've also been doing research uh, on Milton for, since graduate school, so for 25 plus years, and that greatly informed it as well. But I wanted to present a broader audience with an understanding of Milton and a glimpse into him that even if you haven't read his works, you could really find out how interesting they are. So there's
1: no end of books in Milton, is there? I mean, there's, there, there are books in Milton that get published by the score each year, and there's bibliographies produced that help readers navigate that very substantial body of work. What makes your book so distinctive in that field? It really is distinctive, but what makes it distinctive?
0: I think... I've often said it's a long walk down the library uh, aisle with Milton books because they just keep uh, proliferating. And I'm pleased for that. I'm pleased to have the variety of perspectives and approaches. What I've tried to do in this book is present a biography that also delves into his writings and to present it in a new way. So I've organized it thematically instead of strictly chronological. I've organized it uh, by these main ideas instead of a greatest hits overview. And I think that kind of accessible, thematic, uh, conversational approach is what I uh, attempted or aspired to do that might make this book a little different than what's been done previously.
1: Hmm. And I suppose one, one of the great things that you achieve in this book is to make Milton timely. So you mentioned earlier on how your students often perhaps with no background in Milton, find him a very prescient thinker, um, at least according to the standard of his own times. And that's one of the things you really emphasize, isn't it? This is a Milton for our times. Um, your subtitle puts it, How to Persist in Troubled Times. And as I read through this, I was constantly being shifted back from uh, the, the mid-17s, later part of the 17th century to the present day to think about things like bereavement, like free speech, tyranny, liberty, love, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of themes that that cross a cut, uh, that, that cut across uh, these periods in such compelling ways. But one of your earliest chapters is to do with bereavement and death. Why, why did you decide to begin there?
0: I decided to begin there because, in part, it is a subject that we can see Milton gradually changing his views of as he matures. So when he writes about death as a young man, he writes it as a young man who didn't have firsthand experience, who is relying on these trite ideas of, oh, it'll be okay. But what you see by the time you reach his later works, where he had witnessed the death of his parents, where he had witnessed the death of some of his infant children, including his only son, where he had witnessed the death of two wives. um, He also had gone gone periods of plague, He writes about it with a greater maturity and a deepening understanding. And I wanted to provide readers with that sense of his evolution, that he wasn't a static writer, that he was someone who responded to his times and was willing to grow and change with them. Also, he had a boyhood friend. A fellow named Charles Diodati, who was an Englishman but who was of Italian descent, as Diodati might suggest. And this was really a formative friendship for Milton. This is the fellow with whom he was discovering some of the greatest works of literature of the, as they were considered at, in Milton's time—Homer, Virgil, Ovid, writers such as that. And this was so uh, foundational for Milton's own writing and own training that I thought it important to begin with that friendship. Um, Charles Diodati then died tragically, we think probably from the plague, although no specific um, record survives. Um, And Milton, as he did with many other deaths that he witnessed and, and suffered during his life, responded by writing. He turned to words. He turned to reading what other people had said in their times of grief. And he tried to articulate how he was feeling in response to Charles's passing.
1: As Milton thought about those experiences of death, which bereavement do you think was most significant for him as a literary artist?
0: Well, that that's a great question because it cuts two ways. On the one hand, it was Charles Diodati's passing. Uh, they shared their works. Uh, he was sometimes Milton's first audience as a young man. And although we only have one poem that survives by Charles, he also apparently shared his works with Milton. The death that also had a profound influence though on Milton's writing was the death of Charles I. Now that was not someone with whom he had a personal relation. Um, That was not someone whom he knew well. That is someone with whom he, he may have never met. We have no record of them ever encountering each other directly. But the political implications of the British civil wars, which you might remember are fought over Charles's attempt to increase the monarch's power, And in part, he was exercising that by trying to enforce a uniform practice of worship across Britain. That death and in the context of the Civil Wars was really influential for Milton on a personal level. It affected his marriage. Um, It affected him professionally. He came to work with the government that replaced Charles and it affected him in his writing because it's hard not to see evocations of it in some of his works such as Paradise Lost, which deals in part with the rebellion.
1: One of the aspects of the book that deals with Charles's death that I thought was most revealing was your comment, almost a throwaway comment, but I thought such an illuminating comment that uh, there was the discovery that in Icon Uh, Basilica which was Charles's death or supposed to be Charles's death meditation it turns out that the the author of that text or the compiler of that text had plagiarized some material from Philip Sidney and in some ways that that almost becomes a metaphor doesn't it for notions of property and liberty and, and the kind of appropriation of royalty that that so much seems to be so much at stake in this period.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and I think Milton was upset with Charles on many levels, and that was one of them, this idea of taking someone else's language and presenting it as your own. Now, as as you and, and, and many listeners know, originality was thought of differently in the 17th century. So Shakespeare could take Pyramus and Thisbe and other plays and then rewrite them and get credit for them and be celebrated for the originality of the expression and how he made them his own. But to take someone else's words and present them as yours without first making them your own, that was thought of as plagiarism. And and that was considered a, a high offense for Milton, apparently. And also he sees it as part of the king's deceptiveness, as part of the king not being honest and not being forthright with the people about his motives and who he is. So um, what's striking with the specific example you mentioned of Sidney is when Milton accuses Charles of this uh, appropriation, or he he says he sharked it from Philip Sidney's Arcadia, this prayer. Um, Then people came to Charles's defense in print and said, no, no, you planted that John Milton in this second edition of Icon Basilica in order to set him up and in order then to out him as having uh committed plagiarism so it, you can see in just that one instance how contested how deeply divided uh, politically the nation was and you can hear evocations of that in our own hashtag twitter verse culture of 2022 2023
1: you just can't be a good conspiracy theory can you even in the 17th century
0: <laughs> no and, and what you see in this burgeoning culture of print as the printing press really plays an important role in the civil wars as, as both sides are trying desperately to dominate the media or the medium, I should say, of that time. You see similarly how online and, and, and in the 21st century, people are trying to use this new me- relatively new medium to gain political foothold, to mm. persuade other people, and to sometimes propagate conspiracy theories or to um, advance extreme views.
1: I suppose one of the things that struck me about the middle section of the book was that contrast between Charles simply, or Charles's author, whoever whoever wrote Icon Basilica, uh, lifting material at second hand, and the contrast there, obviously, with with Milton himself, sweating over language, thinking carefully about language, and, and losing his eyesight as he does so. Do you think that... Milton w- was conscious that he was sacrificing his eyesight for the greater Republican good?
0: He was conscious. We know that because in one of his tracts that he wrote on behalf of the new government, and by new government, I mean the uh, new executive branch that replaced the monarch as Parliament's um, House of Commons stayed in place during the civil wars, um, that he writes in there that the doctors have come to him and said, you've got to slow down. You've got to stop straining your eyes or you're going to go completely blind. And we also have from Milton a letter that he wrote to a friend of his um, about his his sight dwindling. And he describes in there the increasing symptoms. And he describes it as a whiteness that he sees. And it first affects one eye and and then it's mostly in the mornings and he has headaches. And then he describes how... Um, it's gradually um, affecting his other eye as well. So he, it was clear to him. We know his mother had bad eyesight from uh, a, a, bio, a biographical record that survives, but it seems that Milton was much more conscious of this happening over time. He had doctors warning him not to do it, and yet he endured, yet he kept going.
1: What does that tell us about his commitment to the values of this new regime?
0: I think that is a way that he's trying to foreground that value in the tract. And I should note, because things are complicated, that some readers look at that at the beginning of the tract when he makes his claim and say it's, it's probably exaggerated, or it might be rhetorical to say that that's his pose or posture for making a claim to how committed he is to the Republican cause for a more representative form of government to replace the monarch. But we also have some sonnets that he's wrote about his blindness, and those seem to substantiate the type of claim, although not all the details of the type of claim he makes in that tract. And I think that shows the seriousness that he approached language, the way he felt that he was being called. He, he thought that when he felt in his conscience something to do, that that was God's voice, asking him to do this, and he took it very seriously. He saw England, uh, he saw Britain as a chosen nation, and he was completely determined to try to do what he believed was the right thing. So what
1: he believes is the right thing is, is linked very much to some of the responsibilities he has during the Republic uh, period as well, in in, in his work in the civil service. Uh, He has a complicated relationship to what we might call free speech, hasn't he? And this is something you you really think about quite carefully in the book. Does Milton believe in
0: free speech? He does. But like many of us, um, he is willing to put limits on that concept. His tract in 1644 arguing for freedom of speech and freedom of the press is really a landmark argument that in the United States, for example, has been cited by the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, I think five times. Um, And also it was influential in the thinking of John Stuart Mill, which then indirectly informed our United States constitution. However, as Milton's arguing for freedom of speech, he doesn't want anybody to get to say things. He says, and this is a this is a paradox that many of us su- subscribe to even in the 21st century. I don't want to allow someone to speak freely who would say something against the right to speak freely, because that person then is unlawing the law, is how Milton puts it. So you, and, and in his time, I should say specifically, it's the Catholic Church that he's really um, Um, objecting to, because the censorship that they were responsible for, the the practice of licensing books before they can get published, that you would have to have an official license before it could go to print, he felt that that was stifling. So he was very much opposed to pre-publication censorship, the idea that you had to get this approval from the government, from the powers that be, before it goes to print. But he says, once it gets out there, then it's kind of a free marketplace of ideas. And if it is something that is horrendous, that proves monstrous, then he is all for, okay, then we need to not allow it to circulate widely. So he's against unlawing the law and allowing people to say we shouldn't have free speech. Those people should be silenced. And again, in Milton's time, that was the Catholic church in his mind. But he's also specifically emphasizing don't put restrictions on authors before they get things printed uh, because it says then you know we'll internalize it. and we won't even dare to bring it to print or, or try to get approval because we know it's not going to succeed. So a, a form of self-censorship is then baked into um, authors' attempts at free expression.
1: And I suppose Milton could see the argument both in the perspective of being a licensor and as an author of controversial work. He, he writes those four volumes, I think, on divorce, doesn't he, which become incredibly controversial. And he writes those tracks in divorce, or, or most of them, I think, while he is himself going through some quite significant marriage difficulties. Are we able to read Milton's marriage difficulties into those tracks or, or is that an illegitimate way to approach understanding them?
0: No, it's very much a legitimate way to approach them. Um, this, What he refers to as the spur of self-concernment um, seems to have been behind those, the uh, number of tracks and the enthusiasm with which he wrote them. One of them he publishes, gets into all sorts of hot water, people object to it. And so he writes a fully expanded revised version, desperately trying to make himself clear. He was attacked for wanting divorce at license. Um, that uh, The idea that you could just um, engage in a relationship with someone, and then, oh, I've changed my mind, and now let me have an opportunity to sleep with someone else. And he was not for that at all. But here's why it's a little more complicated. We know from his private journal, his commonplace book, that he supported divorce even before he was married, so that this was a principled position, it was influenced, no doubt, by his own marital difficulties. In 1645, his wife leaves him to go visit her family in Oxford under with the expectation she'll be gone for just a few months and she doesn't return for almost four years. And this must've been humiliating for him, must've been difficult for her. Um, We don't know the circumstances of why she doesn't return. He might've been a terrible husband. She might've been lonely living in London so far from her large family in Oxford. We're not sure, it's pleasing to speculate all the different scenarios that might've been unfolding at the time. And their their separation was exacerbated by the British civil wars. Oxford became the stronghold of the king. London was the stronghold of parliament. Those are the two sides who are opposed in the political conflict. And so it was not even safe to go back and forth between the two cities. So Milton is writing from that experience and maybe the best evidence, and this is, this is, this is a little bit shaky ground to go on, that it's personal because he never refers to himself or her his own marital difficulties in the tract. Milton was not shy at talking or writing about himself and that he remained so silent about his own marital difficulties in his divorce tracks might be an indication of how important this matter was, and he was really trying not to make it personal. Um, but he, even in his final days, he was still being attacked as the divorcer. Hmm. Uh, this was a very controversial position for him to take. He's uh, uh, there was threatenings for banning his books, and that's out of it was out of this experience that he then wrote his tract about freedom of speech about freedom of the press.
1: So in some respects, Milton's views on marriage can seem quite modern, can't they? And this is something that you dwell on in the book. Um, In in, in the book, you you give a passing glance to to an aspect of Milton's thinking about marriage that we don't tend to read a huge amount of, at least I haven't read a huge amount of, in Milton's scholarship. And that's his support for polygamy. Now, that that comes out in De Doctrine of Christianity, the the unpublished-in-his-own-lifetime um, compilation of sources; it's claimed, or perhaps fully, uh, f- fully constructed systematic theology that other people might claim. What what can we learn about Milton's views in marriage when we think when we think both about divorce and about the possibility of polygamy, which seems quite unmodern in 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 some respects?
0: That's a good point, and and the and why it's such a good point is because it illustrates that for Milton he took. Talked- seriously, that the Bible was the word of God. Now, he thought that it was possibility for error in the Bible, and he thought we were supposed to apply our conscience, which he saw as a gift from God, and our reason in understanding the Bible. So he was not a mere literalist. He was saying, look, we have to read this thoughtfully. And so as you're referring to, he composed this systematic theology where he attempted to go through and look at all the passages in the Bible that relate to predestination. Look at all the passages of the Bible that relate to Son of God, uh, which is actually the longest chapter in his theological treatise. All of the references to the Holy Spirit. And then to figure out, don't listen to authority. Don't listen to tradition. Don't listen to your preacher on Sunday. Figure it out for yourself. It was your right and this is the hard part, the responsibility to figure this out on your own. In the case of polygamy, of course, Milton was not a practicing polygamist but he thought in his reading of Hebrew scriptures that there was a basis for this being allowable. That was also his argument for divorce. He may have been influenced unconsciously or consciously by his own marital difficulties, but he felt that if you were to go back to these four central texts uh, in the Bible on marriage, going back to Genesis, going back to Deuteronomy, going back to Matthew, if you look at those, they allow for divorce in certain situations so in the same way that's why he according to the letter supports polygamy in his unpublished theological treatise
1: i I thought there was a wonderful section in the middle of your book Stephen, when you're describing his views on divorce when you refer to his views on polygamy but what you're really emphasizing in that section is the idea of forgiveness Here's Adam and Eve after the fall. The relationship has been really disrupted uh, through this third-party intervention, and yet they have to find a way to to live together, to to live on uh, as a couple. Why is forgiveness so important? You you reconstruct beautifully that moment when Milton wanders around to one of his best friend houses, and after, what, three, four, five years, I forget how many years his wife has been away, all of a sudden she appears from behind a curtain. And you, you depict them, you know, walking out of that friend's house and having to rebuild a life together. What's going on in Milton's mind as he thinks about forgiveness?
0: I think it's a fascinating question because the other part of it is politically his side ultimately loses. And when the king comes back to power after Charles the first, we now have Charles III, as you of course know, but it was Charles the second. And when Charles II comes back in 1660... There is an attempt to be forgiving, but that's something people really struggle with. And Milton goes into hiding um, for three briefly, and he's imprisoned, and he depends on his friends to get him released. So he was aware of the uh, possible ramifications of no political forgiveness. And then in his personal life, he recognized how crucial it was in reconciling with his wife. I think many people and this is a generalization, are attracted to or aware of Paradise Lost because of such a compelling portrait of Satan. But what really takes readers by surprise is not so much being surprised by sin, so to speak, but being surprised by how remarkably complicated Adam and Eve are portrayed. And in that marriage of theirs, which begins in perfection in Paradise Lost, because when we meet them, they are already together in wedded bliss in Eden. They then um, have flashbacks and recollections of Eve, for example, remembers when she was first created. Adam, later in a conversation with the angel, um, Raphael will describe how he was created. But then we watch them going from that state to their marriage falling apart, and then in the, them picking up the pieces and going on together. And it's a really beautiful story that we don't know if Milton was consciously or unconsciously drawing on his own marital difficulties or his own experiences, but it's a story of endurance. It's a story of forgiveness. It's And, and if there's hope, even for these two who could cre- you know, create death or introduce death into the world and all our woes um, with this loss of Eden, then I think Milton's holding out for his readers, there's hope for all of us. Hmm. That, it, it's a
1: fascinating observation, Stephen. One of the most compelling chapters for me was your chapter on doubt. Back at the start of our conversation, you emphasised students coming into the classroom if they're aware of Milton, it's often as quite a dour, dogmatic kind of thinker who's got an answer for everything, famously the last man to know everything. But, but your chapter on doubt opens all of this up in a very illuminating way because what you show there is that in some of the later poems, Paradise Regained perhaps, but especially Samson, what, what the reader is being invited to do is think critically about the moral or ethical positions with which they're being presented. The question, the famous question, of course, is Samson a hero or a suicide bomber, as John Kerry might put it? Or, yeah. or, or, and also um, what really struck me was the way in which the the last lines supplied in the history of Britain what, 11 years or, or so after um, Samson's published it, nine years maybe, I forget, uh, actually create a different kind of ending, an alternative ending for that text. How does all of that work out?
0: It's fascinating to me because Milton was hyper-partisan, extremely confident, um, overly uh, proud, and yet you can see in his works his awareness of the limitations of that whether it be putting in the center of paradise lost, a character undone by hubris, or in his theological treatise saying, here are all my beliefs. Here's the way I read the Bible. And he, and he, says, he refers to it as his dearest and best possession at the beginning of Christian doctrine. But he also then says, don't believe this. Don't accept my authority. Figure it out for yourself. At a couple different points in the prefatory letter to his theological treatise, he didn't presume that he knew it all. Then he describes in his treatise on free speech, this idea that we each have to work very hard individually to pursue truth, but that we then have to come together. And it's in that collaboration of building the temple, as is the metaphor he uses from the Bible, um, that we will arrive at truth, that there are all these dissevered pieces that have to be reassembled like a jigsaw puzzle. And in Samson Agonistes, after the failure of the Civil War, Uh, in the revolution. After his political dreams were dashed, Charles II comes back uh, to reestablish monarchy in England. And as he sees some of his friends and collaborators um, being tried and then um, killed, as the bodies of three of the revolution's leaders are exhumed and burned in effigy and then their heads are put on London Bridge, Cromwell, Ayrton, and uh, the third one's escaping me right now. Uh, as he sees all that happening, he writes this poem, this dramatic poem, Samson Agonistes, which really is an exorcising and an exercise in what if I was wrong? Um, how do you know that your conscience is God talking to you? Because we have the, 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 the poem all takes place as Samson's already imprisoned. And he's saying, I was supposed to be the deliverer, why didn't it work? Um, what, was it you know what, what why where was my failure? And when he finally then has this action of destroying the theater, um, it's not a temple in Milton's poem; it's a theater. As he destroys that with all the Philistines, Milton really underscores how much destruction is involved, and he seems to be challenging his readers to say, "What do you think about this?" And I think that's where the controversy today continues. Is that I think we see Milton working through his own uncertainty and the own difficulties of having an an inscrutable God and wanting to act in the right way, but then wondering at times whether he's done so.
1: Yes, it's a it's a very human coda in some respects to, to his career. I know it's not the last thing of his that gets published, but the, the, the way you construct it, it um, brings the book to a very effective conclusion. Stephen, at the end of the book, in the epilogue, you mention that Milton always finds readers in moments of upheaval. And you take us through the romantics and other periods where Milton has really attracted uh, enthusiastic readers who are in their own moments of doubt uh, and uncertainty as they look at the world and try to find ways through it we are well I suppose one of the subtexts of your book is that we're in a similar kind of moment now as you look out at the wide world do you have any sense that there is a revival of interest in Milton are we seeing a similar wave of enthusiasm for reading Milton and if not would you want to suggest why
0: I don't know if we are. I do know there was a recent biography of John Donne published. There was another book on Milton for a broader audience that was published, I believe, either early 2022 or last year. Um, and there was talk of a film version of Paradise Lost. And there continues to be rumors of that. Martin Freeman, most recently um, I've read, is thinking about doing it as a series. Um, or streaming series. So he, and and I can say anecdotally and and more narrowly in my own experience as a teacher, he continues to draw students to the classroom. That we owe so much to him in our 21st century conception of Satan and the story of the devil. Many of us borrow from Paradise Lost without realizing it, thinking we're describing something that occurs in the Bible, but in fact it was something that Milton invented. In his story of satan's um evolution and character so i think i'd like to think i know so I, uh, that it's also in part willful that milton remains part of our consciousness and 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 is showing an ongoing interest uh among a wide range of readers even as we are rightfully ex- continue to expand the traditional canon and include more voices and people from diverse backgrounds and celebrate those voices that have been silenced or ignored for so long, there still seems as part of that chorus, a place for Milton and his voice to continue um, speaking and singing to us in the 21st century.
1: Well, you certainly make a case for that uh, in reading John Milton, How to Persist in Troubled Times. Uh, Stephen DeBronski, it's just been great to have you on the show today we really appreciate your time before we wind up though could you tell us what we might look forward to reading from you next
0: oh i'm currently working on a book uh, about william shakespeare um, that is more literary than biographical that's looking for common theme in his works across a variety of his plays histories comedies and tragedies
1: fantastic well look forward to seeing that in due course Um, Thanks very much for coming onto the show today. Um, Appreciate your time and congratulations again on this really brilliant book. Thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.